Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is one of the best skiers in the world, and certainly when it comes to versatility, Marcus Ader is one of the best to ever do it, which he has proven in slope-style comps, he has proven in freeride world tour comps, and he has proven in films like The Ultimate Run. So it was a real pleasure to talk with Marcus about his training for the upcoming season, his approach to mental preparation. We talk about pressure and different forms of pressure, whether that is competing in an Olympic slope style competition or dropping into the Beck for an FWT finals or filming a big line when he knows he's only going to get one shot at it. And I mentioned this over on our Gear 30 podcast this past Friday, but this conversation with Marcus functions as a really great complimentary piece with the conversation I had on Friday with Hoji. So I highly recommend listening to both of these pieces and getting to hear two of the best big mountain skiers out there talking about training and their respective approaches for getting mentally prepared for big lines and big moments. And finally, Marcus and I also talk a bit about gear, and it was really interesting getting his thoughts about the Vocal Built Together program and his thoughts about the ski he spends the vast majority of his time on, the Vocal Revolt 121. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Open Snow, and Open Snow is providing an exclusive offer for you, our Blister audience. You can get an Open Snow 60 day trial to check out the app and all of Open Snow's best features, which includes comparing 10 day snow forecasts for your favorite ski areas tracking incoming storms and estimated snowfalls with high-resolution weather maps, reading daily analysis from Open Snow's team of local forecasters, and there is much, much more. So you really need to head over to opensnow.com blister to test drive all of the features for yourself because I promise you, if you're still just using one of those stock weather apps that comes on your phone, well, one, it is far less accurate than Open Snow. And when it comes to features, well, there's just no comparison between those stock apps and Open Snow. So head over to opensnow.com blister. And now let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Marcus Ader. Here we go. Well, Marcus, how are you today and where are you today? What up? Um, I'm doing good. I'm here in Arndtal, which is the valley where I grew up and I live here. And it's basically all the way up north in Italy. It's actually the most northern valley in Italy, right on the Austrian border. I was just telling you that uh, I finally, finally made it to Italy for the first time in my life this past June. 
the plan is I'm supposed to actually be heading back there in just a couple weeks. Couldn't be more excited. And I'm currently of the opinion, I think Italy's the best country in the world. I, don't, I haven't been to every country in the world, but I, my current assessment is I think this might be the case. Yeah, I have to say it's pretty freaking nice here, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> From food to mountains, the ocean, I think we pretty much got everything. I think you're doing okay. But I have yet to make it to Northern Italy. And so this, I need to figure this out at some point, it sounds like. Yeah, you definitely gotta, you definitely gotta come in the mountains for sure. It's awesome. Like if you've never been to the Dolomites, you totally have to go. There is more than, way more than the Dolomites in the mountains, of course. Like, you know, all the, all the 4,000 meter peaks in the Alps. Not all of them, but most of them are like bordering with Italy. So it's kind of half of them are ours too. (laughs) So yeah, there's a bunch of mountains to explore for sure. How much time in the last year or two have you been able to be at home versus traveling? Um, I think the past couple of years, of course, with, with COVID, um, I've been home more than I used to. Um, generally, I just feel like I need to be home more to be able to do what I do. I, I just need that for the bal- for the balance in my life. Like when I was younger, I don't know. <laughs> like right now, I have no idea how I did it because I would just be traveling for skiing for years and years, all year round, you know. After the winter season, I would go on the glaciers. After the glaciers, pretty much straight to New Zealand and Chile, coming back on the glaciers again. And then the winter starts and I would do that for, for a couple of years. And then eventually I got hurt, probably because I was skiing too much. I was just, yeah, you know, I had. I was skiing a lot of slope style back then and I had my tricks, all of them on lock and I didn't even have to think of doing those double corks. And uh, for some reason, I have no idea. Like after pretty much skiing straight for two years, I just didn't think and took way too much speed and wrecked my knee. And from then on, I kind of started to take my time off during the summer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. How old, how old were you then when you had the injury? Uh, it was 2011. So 21 or 20 or something. Yeah. 21. It's kind of funny or sobering how the injuries for many of us and for many of us who aren't remotely doing what you're doing on skis – how the injuries tend to get us to like reset and rethink yeah, for our sure. approach and what we're doing. It sounds like that's true for you. Yeah. Injuries are a breaker or a maker. <laughs> you know, I've seen like, for me, it was just, it was fueling me basically. The injury I had on the knee was pretty bad. And I still like every year I'm struggling because of that, basically. And, um, but I don't know. I just know I <laughs> want to, I would keep going. Even like rehabilitation was not bad for me. I just knew that what I was, what I was working for. Um, 
But yeah, I've seen like like crazy talents over the years where I would think, okay, these are here to stay. And one big injury would have them quit or like, I don't know, just couldn't keep going, I guess, which is fine too. But yeah, either a maker or a breaker. Yeah. So that knee, you said it's still something you have to pay a lot of attention to or how, how would you talk about it? I mean, are you just very specific in terms of your training or like managing that or, or you're saying even with all of that intentional prehab, it's still an issue. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically I dislocated my knee, um, and it tore the ACL, uh, have quite the cartilage damage, not anymore, <laughs> which is super, which I'm super stoked about, but yeah. Uh, bone bruise and just yeah both both meniscus I don't know maybe I, I said that already and um, and yeah so until that point I never really did any training during the summer the only thing I did was skiing I was like okay training is for uh, nerds and I just <laughs> yeah. ski who cares can I fit uh-huh. and then to get back uh, back on track I went during the summer for 17 weeks to the Red Bull uh, training center, um, which is, uh, you know, it's all changed now. It's uh, much more modern, but back then it was a bit more old school in, in, in your head. So you had to go there and basically obey to what they wanted you to do, which is a good thing for me. I was actually enjoying that. And I was just training like crazy for 17 weeks. Um, and I still go, go back there, um, every year, you know, to, to get my, get myself back on track and have like my whole body looked after. And, uh, now it, it has changed and it's, it's, um, uh, more progressive. Um, so I just love to go back there either case. If it was old school, I would go back there too. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, so from that on, I've basically trained, uh, more, um, but I'm not really the guy to go to the gym. Like my training is, or my training's philosophy is kind of following my hobbies, which is, um, biking, hiking, climbing, skateboarding, and, uh, and those things, um, like make me become really fit for skiing, you know, because of in skateboarding, it's about balance and, and coordination and, um, biking, of course, uh, just helps the entire body. Climbing is good for muscle tension from tip to toe. And, uh, of course I would go to the gym too and do other trainings too, but mostly I would just follow my hobbies and uh with the knee um i was actually really close to get a second surgery on the cartilage cuz i after the season i would barely be able to walk kind of and um you know during the summer it would get better again and then during the winter i would kind of <laughs> um damage it again 
and I would I was seeing a bunch of doctors during that time and uh, it was kind of 50 50 50 percent was saying you should get a surgery 50 percent was saying you should not get a surgery at the end I didn't and um and that's the best decision made and this year actually it's it's super interest like super cool for me I was going uh to the to the Red Bull training center to get to have myself checked also have MRIs on both knees um also on the other knee, which hurts since two winters. <laughs> and I was skateboarding a lot in the summer. So I would ask myself, okay, uh, skateboarding might be counterproductive to what I do. Maybe I have to quit. Like if it's getting worse, I have, I probably have to quit. So after the MRI, um, turns out that my cartilage is healed and, um, the doctors and everyone like physiotherapists, nobody could really believe it. And uh, I would talk with, with all of those, all of those guys, which are like the most professional you can imagine. And apparently skateboarding is good for your knees. Wait a minute. <laughs> this is hilarious. Cause normally I just think of skateboarding is a phenomenal way to wreck yourself. And you are here talking about the benefits of skateboarding as training and therapy for knees and for ski season exactly <laughs> two thumbs up from marcus exactly say more how is skateboarding good for knees um okay so skateboard i'm not the guy jumping stair sets or doing crazy stuff you know i'm, I'm i you i grew up being like uh, skating flat grounds not really that good but i try to be <laughs> And, uh, yeah, apparently like all those small impacts that you have, like constantly on the, with the skateboard are not as high to damage it, but it's a constant stimulation for cartilage bones, uh, as well as ligaments. And it makes it all stronger. And it's like, it, uh, makes it heal. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it helps healing. But of course, skateboarding has its risks too, you know, uh, and actually it's funny or interesting, like thinking about that a little bit, like there's not many of the pro skateboarders that have knee problems. Of course, there is some, but most of them have ankle problems. Ankle is the, the worst thing for for like what with skateboarding but the knees most of them are good even those who do crazy gaps and stair sets and yeah big drops their knees are fine and and even like those who used to hit huge stair sets like 20 years ago there's some skateboarders that are now almost 50 and still killing it you know and so talking with the, with the guys at the Red Bull Training Center, it kind of filtered out that it, it's actually not that bad. Actually, it's good. Let's say, let's keep it like that. It's good. Everybody, kids, go get your skateboard. Get ready for ski season. Yep. I mean, this is a timely topic, right? I mean, it's, it's actually here in Crested Butte has been snowing good the last several days. And it's like, nice. it's, it's, it's going to be game on very soon here, I think. But um, so let's stay a little bit on this, like how you get prepared for 
an upcoming season. And so you've, you've spelled out what you're doing, but two things I'd like to ask you a little more about the climbing and the biking, like what kind of climbing are you doing? What kind of biking are you doing? Um, biking, I'm not a big biker guy. Uh, it's just for before the sport, like before sport or after sport, something nice to do in the nature to get rid of the lactat, like the, you know, when you, yeah, the bad thing in your Lactic acid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I'm so not, more kind of road road riding? I uh, no, I it's like on a steep everywhere where I live. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so I'm using the e-bike. I've got a pretty nice e-bike. Um so yeah, it's nice. It's super nice cuz it, it's not with the biking um it's usually it has always been too intense cuz everywhere you go, you go steep up. And that's counterproductive. If you're doing other training and with the e-bike, I can do some really nice biking and get high up and get the views and stuff without, um, without being too intensive on the muscles, just like that little bit, uh, for me, it's kind of 130, um, heartbeats, uh, the, the pulse is like 130. I have to kind of stay underneath that range and it's just the best the the best training for me. So just to be clear, are you you're riding paved roads or you're mountain biking on like trails, dirt trails or single track? Paved and of course as well uh trails. Okay, both. But you're keeping it mellow. I'm not but I'm not going out to 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 go for the trail. I'm going out to go for the bike ride. Yep, and sometimes I like I just ride down the, the road. I used to do more downhill and single trails and whatever, but um, right now I'm not too interested in it. Yeah, it's too dangerous. That's why you just do something safer like skateboarding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the danger, the danger is nice. <laughs> the danger is nice. Talk about the climbing side. What kind of climbing are you doing? Um, I used to climb since, since I'm a kid, um, sport climbing foremost, uh, that's for sure the most I've done outside. Um, I didn't do it that much for a couple of years cause I was just over it. You know, after the winter season, I would basically always start from scratch again. And there were some summers where I didn't do much climbing also, yeah, life is pretty busy and don't always have the time for it. Um, getting back into it a bit more. Um, my friends build a super, super cool, uh, boulder, boulder place at their home. It's, it's, it's like, it's a high boulder. It's like five meters high. It's really, really cool. And so after skiing or after ski touring, we would go there, hang out, have a few beers and climb a little bit. And uh, of course, during summer, we meet there sometimes. Yeah. I've did some uh, multi-pitch stuff. Not very much though. Um, just yeah, last week we did a super cool multi-pitch in the Dolomites in Cortina. Uh, you have to check that place out. Climbing is freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and climbing around where you are, I think is sounds like pretty freaking awesome. Yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> my home valley is not really famous at all for uh, sport climbing or whatever climbing because we don't have it's like steep everywhere but we don't have that many walls um but it's the climbing that is there is really 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 good like super cool there is uh we have a super cool granite wall there is one place where you know you can always go when it rains because it's like such a huge overhang that uh you know it can be pissing rain and you're still dry but there is not too many people coming here for that because we have the Dolomites just 20 minutes away and most of the people would go there basically. But ice, it's, uh, it's quite the mecca for ice climbing actually. Like ice climbing is insanely good here. You don't ice climb, do you? I did a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing where the entire wall can just rip down on you has always. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, that's one I think a lot about the For big sure. reason why I have not really explored that world. Do you climb? Used to. Yeah. Used to life is, uh, this whole blister thing has made me kind of pick, pick my spots in terms of, uh, my outdoor activities. So, and climbing more than any sport I've ever done. It was like, if I wasn't climbing four times a week, like without fail, I just, would get worse very quickly. Whereas like if, you know, skiing, if you miss a week of skiing, I don't no notice any difference. Climbing, <laughs> climbing, it would just be like, oh my God, I just lost all my strength because I missed like five days. For sure. That's the crazy thing with it. Did you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Like when I start climbing again, I really try to go as often as I can. Because if I just go once a week, even it's just not enough. You just stay where you are. Instead, when you go like three, four times, three times a week, you know, you can really feel how you, how that you're getting better fast. And yeah, it's kind of hard to find that time, but I just hate to suck. And therefore I need to <laughs> do a lot of it when I do it. Yeah, that's right. You talked about, you know, in your maybe early years of really coming up on the scene, you were just skiing nonstop, traveling nonstop. You talked about you weren't a training nerd. Do you think attitudes are changing now? And I'm thinking about, well, actually, like I, you know, spent a little time with like Max Palm this, this past June. And I mean, that kid, I mean, incredible skier but that guy i'm like i don't know that he's like a training nerd right now either but maybe i'm not giving max enough credit i mean he's just so good at what he does but i'm like are, i'm curious from your perspective are you seeing the 19 and 20 year olds are they taking the training side of things more seriously than you know when you were a 19 and 20 year old and like you're seeing, you know, the, the, the folks coming up with you around that time, what are you seeing? He, for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, those like those guys who are doing World Cups and going uh, for the Olympics and stuff. Though those guys are trained to the max. It's uh, it's super impressive. Like you know, I grew up in the golden age of skiing. I would say kind of you know. We didn't have national teams or coaches or all of those guys like looking after us. We had to organize everything ourselves, like do all the talking with sponsors ourselves, uh, you know, figure out a crew to travel with. I would travel with Italians, Austrians, Swiss people, French, you know, whoever, like we were all just homies traveling together and helping each other with the, with uh, learning the tricks and we would also do everything uh, we would go to the back country streets uh, slope style contest big air contest you know and i i think i was kind of like um my generation you know there was probably one generation or there was one yeah the ge- generation in front of me like i was kind of trans- in the transition of, uh, where somebody, where everyone does everything to, okay, Olympics coming up. I mm, really wanted to qualify for Sochi as well. First Olympics, uh, for us free skiers, even though I was not the biggest fan of all of that. And, um, and yeah, so the, the, all the, all the teams developed coaches, trainers, and as a skier now in freestyle, the only thing you have to think about is your tricks and your run and there is not much other you need to think about because it's all taken care of and i used to be super against that like i you know skiing also the fact that i had to do all the organization everything myself just brought me so much further in everything else in life it just told me so much in life which i can use now and and for the rest of my life you know it just told me so much and um and i w- was kind of thinking okay if FIS, fis is kind of destroying our sport but now i see different because i think it's super cool like those the, the guys that do the world cups they are insanely trained and they freaking love skiing. They do it all year round. And their one goal is to push the level and get to the top and be more tech. And I think that's a huge dedication that those guys have to the sport because they really, really train. And it's inspiring for me. It's inspiring for me to train more and do more and be fitter because I see how fit those guys are. And I just want to be more fit too, you know? <laughs> and and I kind of thought, okay, with the Olympics and all that stuff, we're going to lose the, our sport is going to lose being cool. We're going to be like mogul skiers, but also that is not true at all. Um, like just coming back to mogul skiers, mogul, skiing moguls used to be super cool. Like every, Every race was different. All the moguls were different and jumps. You know, it was way more freestyle. And now it's okay. Exactly that amount of moguls, ex- that jump, whatever. And, uh, but free skiing already has such a, such a great life behind it 
that it didn't happen. You know, those who didn't decide to go for the Olympic program invented new ways of skiing. Like they're, you know, what the young kids are doing is sick, you know, with all the swerving going on and all those trends in skiing. And they just push the skiing to another level in their way, which is far away from Olympics. Uh, but it's ours. It's growing everywhere. I just think it's super cool. Free skiing has such a nice culture still. You said that you feel like you came up in the golden age of skiing. And I love thinking through these kinds of things. So, cause you just got done talking about how cool things are today and the progression we're seeing today. So I'd love to have you circle back and sort of flesh out the case for why you think you were coming up in the golden age or why that golden age wasn't you know, 10 years prior to you, 10 to 15 years prior to you. This is um, a long lasting golden age ha- though. <laughs> okay. All right. The, the floor is yours. The floor is yours. I, you, that we have a historian of skiing now, a historian of modern skiing who happens to be one of the best skiers out there. Let's see. Let's see what you got. I'm definitely not a historian. It's like kind of my point of view and, and, <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm definitely limited to that. Cause like, for sure when Tanner and Yoon and wow, so many names like their generation, that was probably the golden age, the real golden age. Unless we call that, I mean, maybe are they in the kind of pioneering age? Is that different? Yeah, that was the pioneering age. The golden pioneering age. <laughs> yeah. All right, I, wait, I, I want to hear you say more on this, though. So if we're, let's call Tanner and company, with all due respect to the greats of that era, if they were pioneering the way, that might be a different thing than the golden age. I don't know. This is your argument. So you let's hear you flesh this out. Okay, yeah. So, well, those guys, they, um, they lived, Basically, in the pioneering age where there was no rules and nothing whatsoever. And the only way was up and more and learning new stuff and showing the world what you can actually do on skis. Cause it, the way that they, those guys did it hasn't been shown like that before. And for example, like I, I quit ski racing and for a year I was on snowblades and I had no idea that something like free skiing existed. Um, and I got my first ski movie, which was happy days. And I was just <laughs> like, even my sister still, still knows it, knows it from, um, like on memory, the whole movie, because I showed it to her so many times. <laughs> and, um, and what I think about the golden age that I lived in was, like just the creativity in the whole sport and in the whole lifestyle with competitions like slope style and bigger competitions had where ev- every comp- com- contest was different, different formats, um, just different feelings to it where now that all is standard standardized. There is no, there is not, there is still, but by far not as many creative competitions, cool, creative competitions. 
Um, and that, yeah, that has kind of gone like all the best, all the best skiers now do world cups and try to qualify for Olympics. And for sure, they, some of them, just very few of them do other stuff too, but that's the world that they know. And it's also hard for them to break out of that world because they have never done anything else. Um, like I have, and the skiers that I grew up skiing with, we went filming, we went to the back country, uh, you know, just transitioning in between all those things and could really feel, okay, where we gravitate to the most, or like for me, eventually I was gravitating, uh, more to the back country, like most other skiers did too. And right now it's really difficult for, for a park skier, for a competition skier to transition, to do anything else than competing, like even filming, like filming a segment or a season edit or yeah, it's just, you know, with Instagram and stuff, um, it has changed for sure a lot. Um, still cool though. Just still super cool. Crystal ball question. Where do you think this is heading in the next, say, five to 10 years, just along the lines of competitions or trends or given social media, you know, we have where we are today. Where are we going in the next five to 10 years? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I would have said a couple of times that it can't get crazier, but it got and it keeps progressing. In terms of specific tricks. Yeah. Yeah. But just in terms of, okay, like let's focus back on, do you think we will continue to see pressure on professional athletes, skiers and snowboarders? Will there be more pressure to narrow in to a specific lane or specific discipline or do you think that will sort of reverse and it will will be seeing a move back to more versatility, broader kind of participation in more disciplines and stuff? That was inarticulate, but I think you get the point. Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't think so. Free, uh, free riding and like the Free at World Tour or other backcountry comps, for sure, though, they won't be part of a federation. Or like, it's really hard to make something like it's really difficult with conditions. And, uh, and so I, I, they can't just do on a certain time frame for the live TV, um, a free ride competition, because that just simply doesn't work. So I think there is going to be, that's just one part. I think there is huge parts of free skiing that is not limited and won't be limited. Also, the whole film industry, the, all the film skiers, you know, that make amazing films. That is just open for creativity and also art in what you're making. And that I don't think that it's going to be limited at any point. Um, and for um, freestyle skiing, com like... World Cups and, and Olympics, it's going to be, yeah, it's pretty much, it's hard to limit them more, <laughs> I guess. Um, 
Yeah, and it's still cool. Those guys are living it up big time. It's not that everyone is in in tight uh, tight out outerwear. Um, I think everyone that looks that sees like a competition, a, a free style competition. Um, yeah, just embraces the, the different styles that everyone has. And in, in the clothes they wear, in the tricks they do, in the grabs they tweak, everything. So yeah, I've, I, I don't know. The level for sure is just only going to go up in free riding as in freestyle. Like last year, the free at world tour was insane. I couldn't believe it. Like they, oh, they were insanely unlucky with bad conditions. Every stop was shit snow and those guys still up the level. So how is it going to be this year if they got good conditions? Like, you know, uh, you, you named it before Max Palm. Those guys are the maxes and there, there's a lot of young guns also that made the transition from freestyle into, into like big mountain competitions that mm -hmm. are just gonna up the game. Talk a little bit about pressure. So like we've been talking about these different disciplines, right? The pressure or the nerves of dropping into the back for the FWT finals or dropping into an Olympic slope style run versus say getting a shot in the ultimate run that has to be done on the first try. How, how do you think about these things or how do you feel about these things? You personally in these different, you know, events and scenarios. Uh, yes. <laughs> there was a lot a lot of pressure for sure i i'm really good at like my sponsors don't put pressure on me but i'm really good at pr putting pressure on myself huh. just because i i put high expectations or high goals to myself and i just want to fulfill them no matter what so for the olympics going to sochi my main goal was to qualify because I was never really at the very top of slope style skiing and I was really stoked to actually qualify. And it was a really long process, a lot of competitions, like a lot of skiing all the time. And I finally got there. And I remember the first run, in the first run, I was kind of, okay, whatever. It goes how it goes. And I, I crashed. On the second run, I was able to pull myself together and really get the fire burning inside. And I put my run down and I got 15th, which I'm stoked about. Um, it was my, the la the, actually the last comp in the park I've done since I've, I haven't done any other competition in the wow. park. <laughs> and, um, and for free at, the free at world tour, the pressure there was on a whole another level for me <laughs> because I told myself um, I compete until I win. And the first year that I did the entire tour, I got second overall. And for the second year, it started off super good. I, I won the first two 
No, I won the first one, got second. I won in Japan. I got second in Canada and I won in FIBA Brun. And then I only needed like a top 10 place to make it. So, and that's when, you know, that only needing a top 10, that the pressure inside of me went way Uh up. And um, because it was easy, you know, and people would expect me to, that it's easy. So I just, I just got crazy about it. And I crashed, of course. And uh, then for the last, for the finals in Verbier, well, like besides the fact that Verbier is an insane phase where you really, really shit yourself. Um, there, there was basically two or three weeks leading up to that competition. And I had to, uh, so in case Christopher Tudel was second, if he wins, I just didn't have to crash. I just had to make it to the bottom, but I would never do a run only skiing down. Like, yeah. Anyways, like it was so obvious and so easy for me to win. And everyone already kind of celebrated me as a world champion, but it was not done yet. And those three weeks leading up to that competition was the worst three weeks of my life. Like the entire season was, I was uh, putting too much pressure on myself and um, yeah, ended up Christopher was second. So I knew on the top that I already won and I did a cool run. I was really stoked and yeah, so the pressure was off (laughs) pretty quick. And the cool thing about putting a lot of pressure on yourself is when it gets released, it's such a amazing, amazing, amazing feeling that is not, you cannot put in words. Yeah. Just, um, I don't know if I'm ranting, just interrupt me, but a, a funny story about, about the back. Um, like, you know, Loic Colombaton, he won the Fiat World Tour twice or even three times, I think. And yeah, has competed on the back a couple of times. Like he knows the place. And in the morning, we, on the way up, I, uh, chatted him with him a little bit. And at one point he just walks off and I see him puking behind the lift. And I was like, holy shit, is he sick or something? Are you, I asked him, are you okay? Uh, yeah, this just happens every time competing at the hmm. back. He can't help it. It's like, Mm, it's so crazy that fear makes him puke before the comp. And you can resonate with that? Because there's two things. One is the question of fear. The other, what you were just discussing was just the pressure, right? Don't, Don't catch an edge. Don't, you know, don't have some wobble, hit a bad patch of snow and get thrown off in some weird way. So how do you think about this? Just the fear of the, the back versus the pressure of performing on that gnarly face. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixture. It's hard to divide those two. It's 
it's pretty much it blends blends in it's yeah feelings the feelings before competing like you know scoping lines and thinking about your line and the tension that all of us riders have before going down the back is just uh, really intense <laughs> um, but yeah the, the the fear which i don't really like to call it fear for me it's not fear it's more respect and the respect um, makes me analyze the line and the mountain and the face as much in detail as possible to don't make mistakes. So when I'm standing on top, I pretty much, I'm like pretty much a hundred percent sure about my line. And I, I know that I can do it because I'm not going for something that I'm not sure, sure about. I'm just not, I'm not hacking, hacking, of some crazy thing just for the sake of it but i know exactly that what i picked out i can do it but there is always a little bit of uncertainty um and yeah i just i do a lot of like i'm i'm an intense line analyst and it's like yeah i take days and days I close myself in, in the room and just nerd out. So I want to stay on this last line. You just said those three weeks leading up, I think you said was like the worst time of your life, like sitting with the pressure of this one run. So you're analyzing, you're studying, I guess, through this, but to what degree... I mean, you're still standing on the top of a face that is not some, it's not a basketball court, right? Basketball players aren't like, I hope the floor, like they don't have to think <laughs> about, right? Like, but if I were, you know, I just am thinking like, okay, there's what you want to go do. There's the hits you have thought through and lined up. Do you just remove the possibility of like, you know, what if as I come across this face over here, the snow changes just enough to get weird, right? How much are you doing real time changing to conditions? You're talking about I'm a line analyst. I have it all dialed in my head, but this isn't an Olympic gymnastics routine. How, how help me understand the like working through the line and knowing exactly what you want to do versus having to deal with those conditions at that time, specifically when you drop and maybe the cloud, the sun just went behind the clouds. Explain. Just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, so uh, first thing I need to say is I'm not like, there is different types of skiers on the free at world tour. There is those who really, always want to get into the exposed stuff with with big consequences and sometimes like on the back it's uh, hard to avoid that but even on the back and generally on the tour i rather search for lines where i can do big tricks and um but if i crash i just tumble in the snow i don't fall over rocks i hate to to ski on big exposure where 
shit can really go wrong if I crash. Like the difficult stuff that I do or tricks or where I go big, I just know, okay, if I crash here, I just tomahawk in the snow and it's probably going to be violent and bad and I could get injured, but it's not, I'm not falling over rocks. Um, and yeah, if the snow, like, you know, that sometimes the snow can be bad and, and it can always be bad in places and you just, I just need to be as a good of a skier to be able to handle it, handle it and race, race as fast as I can. Also, if the snow sucks, <laughs> get off the snow as quickly as possible. <laughs> That's what I remember talking to. Xavier de la Rue, who was just like, he's like, one of the reasons I flash lines like I do is get in and get off. <laughs> don't, don't, don't hang around a long time on certain lines. Yeah. Right. And I was like, well, that actually sort of makes sense. Yeah. Like high speed, you know, every turn, every turn I try, I also try to make every turn matter in a sense. I don't just want to be wiggling down from one cliff to the other, but I want to link that with turns that are necessary to do that line. Like, um, yeah, there is one line in Fieberbrunn, actually the one I, where I won, where I was really, really stoked about where every turn mattered, you know, I was really stoked about that fact. And, um, and coming back to pressure, cause I have like, a third pressure season, which was the ultimate run, um, which just wanna, wanna, it was a, a way different situation than Olympics and free at world tour, but also actually that was also really, really put a lot, a lot of pressure on myself. Um, because of the fact that we filmed the run from the bottom up. So basically f the first thing that we could do was, or that we had to do was in the valley and in the streets and in the castle. Um, because that's the first thing that gets snow and the first thing that where it doesn't work anymore. So basically like that, we were working our way up the mountain. After that, the resort would come into play. And after that, we would go to Zermatt and uh, basically so. If I got hurt during anything of the process, there wouldn't have been a beginning. Like, yeah. So we were thinking about, okay, after we had the resort done, we were thinking about, okay, should we just in case film the, the start there? So at least there is a beginning because if I get hurt, there is not going to be a beginning. And I was just really pushing myself the whole time. And I was really scared to let down the whole team. Everyone was working really hard. Everyone put a lot of sweat and thoughts and creativity. Everyone was like way into the project. And the big pressure there was to let everyone down by not being able to finish it because I get hurt. And, uh, and the, the opening shot, like the, on the first glacier, that was actually really the last shot, like, the first shot was the very, very, very last shot on 2nd of July in Zermatt. 
So until that day, I was, uh, yeah, pretty much always a bit freaking out. You've had a good amount of time now maybe to reflect on that whole Ultimate Run project. What today still stands out to you? I mean, you've talked about the pressure of the whole project, which I never even thought of was like, I cannot get hurt. But looking back on all the different segments and sections, what specifically do you look back on and just think either it was the most personally intense, maybe the most personally pressure-filled day for you or the scariest day for you? Uh, the scariest day was the day where I was the least scared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. This is how it often goes, I think. <laughs> yeah. Say more. That was, that was bad, 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 bad shit. Um, so the way I would approach this, the, the entire project was going to all the features and just knowing already what I want to do and ticking it off as fast as I can have as the least tries and the least moments to get hurt and just kind of trying to do everything first try or with the least tries possible, where usually when you film, you have a session on a feature, you know, you, when, if something goes good, you try something better until you're stoked. And I would never have a real session. I would just go there, do the trick I wanted and, and that's it and move on to the next straight away. And it worked out super good during the entire season because 90% of the whole thing, we filmed the second, the second season and uh, it worked out super well. And I would go like, it would get a bit crazier and crazier throughout the whole season. And we were just pushing all the time and everything worked. So we got to Zermatt and, uh, and that one day I was just too confident because everything worked. I, I basically sent myself numb. Like, yeah. Sent myself numb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the big 360. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was the warm up run gonna... of the day. <laughs> yeah. We got up there and, or like, or I knew already, or, you know, every day is actually quite planned out pretty much. And I knew I wanted to do that. I've seen that the year before I skied through it with Sam. And so, okay, let's go there straight. We flew to the bottom of it. I looked at it. Okay, let's do it. They flew me on top. I did a little bit of uh, warm up, just standing uh, in between glacier cracks. And, uh, I dropped in and you can't really see, but there was like, that was, there was quite the line before that too, with, with one ice drop, a couple of turns and then the big drop. And, uh, and yeah, I had no fear whatsoever. And I was basically going twice as big as I wanted and the wrong direction. Cause I was just, I had no fear and no respect and, uh, just boom, went straight into that. And that could have gone really, 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 really wrong. Like I was super lucky to not have gone any further or shorter. Cause it was like, yeah, it was pretty bad. 
it was basically um, the landing. I landed right into an icy tranny, backslapped in between two ice, tra those two ice rollers, and in between was powder blown in. So I backslapped in the powder and flew just centimeters with my hip over the second ice patch. And if I've gone bigger or shorter, uh, that would have sucked. So that was for sure the scariest day of the whole trip. Cause I usually I'm also not the guy risking or crashing a lot. Um, so yeah, that was bad, bad, bad. So, but in hindsight, I mean, you said you've sent yourself numb and that you didn't have the proper respect, but you really think that like, say going forward, there was something that you saw or could have anticipated like that the next time through in some, if there is a similar situation, your approach would actually be different. Like I, I'm, I want to ask if, if you really could have or should have known to do something different, or if this is just, yeah, yeah. Hindsight is 2020. So of course, you know, in hindsight, you, it's like, yeah, I guess I should have done something different, but you're saying there were enough signs and things to see my approach should have been different there. Uh, yeah, it's just stupid. If I look at it now, it's just stupid. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. It's just uh, so not me. Uh, I was... Like, it never happened to me to be, um, like, in skiing, to be embarrassed about something. And I was really, really embarrassed for five days. Hmm. Um, just for, just, you know, I was questioning myself quite a lot. But we sh we shot like we kept shooting that day, like right after I did a a pretty one of my favorite shots. In the yeah, I uh, I kept going basically right after the crash. And even with this sense of embarrassment or a little bit of maybe disappointment in yourself, let alone realizing like I just dodged a bullet here, you then went and got your favorite shot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay what was your favorite shot uh the nose part no i i don't really have a favorite shot in the whole thing but one of my favorites uh, it's a nose butter seven of the glacier of the ice block i was pretty close by and uh yeah worked out perfectly <laughs> jeez and just to clarify this one point, because our managing editor, Luke Kappa, he put this exact question in that he wanted me to ask you. He said, how much did you debate even attempting the absolutely bonkers three off the glacier? Would you attempt something of that scale again? And just for the sake of clarification here, you're saying that three off the glacier was the warm up run of the day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Luke, that's your answer. That was actually the warm-up run. Yeah. 
Yeah, I knew. Okay. I knew, like, I, I basically knew that I wanted to have a huge scent in there, like either a big fucking cliff, even just backslapping real hard would have been fine for me. Just having something absurdly big. And uh, it turned out to be the 360. But uh, yeah, I thought when I first thought of it was like, okay, when it's really, really deep on the perfect cliff, I have to find the perfect huge feature that I can actually send in the best conditions. And uh, yeah, I sent myself numb and forgot about the fear and uh, approach in really analyzing everything the best way which usually fear and respect makes me do not there. And, um, it's good to be laughing afterwards about it and tell you that story. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's always important to kind of, I think, share these lessons, keep reminding all of us all the time about tips near misses things we could have done better whatever level you're skiing at i think these are very helpful things for us to just perpetually do and along those lines you mentioned sam sam antamatin and um you've also you know spent a decent amount of time in the mountains with hoji yes my two favorite guys maybe your two favorite guys it's pretty good they're they're all right yeah i think so it's my two favorite guys for sure. They, I have a lot of a lot of skiers I love, but those two are on the top. Anything in particular, like any particular lessons that kind of stand out, either things they just explicitly told you being out in the mountains or things you just observed watching those guys? So the thing with Sam is... He stays really calm in the most extreme situations. Like he doesn't make you panic. Like he maybe tells you very clear once where the difficulties. Um, he and he tells you tells it to me that. Like he, he tells you in a way that, okay, you know that it's serious, but just by the way he talks to you, you know that you can do it. You know, we've been on expedition in, uh, in Georgia and did a bunch of mountaineering leading up to that. And he was my biggest mentor in, in mountaineering for sure. And, um, and yeah, just that calmness he keeps in extreme situations is super impressive to me. And, um, and with Hoji, it's so hard. Even with Sam, it's, it's kind of unfair to just point out one thing because there is so many things. And the same, the same with Hoji. Um, just, he's just a great human being, insanely passionate about, about skiing. And of course the gear as everyone knows. And, um, as, as well as wanting or trying and actually making the best time for everyone. Like, um, 
maybe to probably when I started, uh, well, I was younger and I was super hungry and I just wanted to get all the best lines and, you know, do the best thing always be better than everyone on every shoot, which, uh, of course doesn't just doesn't always work. And Hoji on the other hand is helping everyone out with finding a line and make sure that they're lined up that everyone is lined up with what everyone like he just makes for a great time for the whole crew which ultimately makes everyone skiing better and um and you don't with him for sure i learned that it's i don't always need to to be the best but wait for those moments you know choose my battles better and um and yeah, just be there with, um, with everyone and, and have a, have a good time instead of just thinking about myself and what I want to do. When you say that he helped you understand better to kind of pick your battles, I can't imagine Hoji actually saying something like that. Hey, Marcus, you need to like, choose your battles. So is that more, correct me if I'm wrong, but would that be more communicated if you're, if you're, if you're looking at lines, you're standing on something, you're kind of doing line analysis together. Is that when that would get communicated? Like he'd be like, ah, I don't know. You could maybe try that, but maybe not today. No, no, he, well, or as well, like, you know, we talk about, uh, everything of a line, but I think what brought that message across is just by hanging out a lot and seeing the way he does it. And as well, as well, for sure, getting older also, um, you learn more to pick your battles and, uh, yeah. Pick your battles and don't send yourself numb. Yes. Those are two big, two big takeaways from yeah, this conversation. Yeah, probably also the first time where I really blew my knee bad was because I sent myself numb because I was just skiing too much and just didn't have any fear and respect from it at that point. So yeah, that's when the mistake happened. Most of the time, the crashes and the mistakes and the injuries happen when, when it's not something um, crazy you're doing. Kind of ironically... I'm actually talking to Hoji like in a few hours and we're doing a, a question and answer uh, thing. It's a Q&A. All the questions are coming in from our Blister members. But I figured maybe I would see if you had a question or two that we could slide into the mix. Hmm. What should I ask Hoji this <laughs> afternoon? Um... <laughs> Yeah, I would love to hear the answer about, just ask him if he feels old. I think I know what his answer is going to be, but all right. I know too, but it's just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all you got. Yeah, it's hard when I, I, I'm really bad at saying something when like specific then or... All right, if, here's the deal. If you don't come up with something else, I'm just going to ask him, what is your favorite 
Marcus segment. <laughs> All right. Okay, you like that one. All right. You could ask him uh, when he's finally moving to Austria. Ooh. Okay, that's a good one. You're going to like get the entire nation of Canada furious <laughs> on this one. But, <laughs> I uh, know. You're like asking them to like remove a national treasure, but we'll we'll see. You're going to start an <laughs> international incident here. Maybe I should ask him what's the dumbest thing he's ever seen Marcus do in the backcountry. All righty. Okay. Okay. We got a couple. It's good. Let's talk gear a little bit. Yes, sir. Well, let's talk a bit about this vocal built together initiative. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, built together is super cool. Um, I'm really stoked, really stoked on that because it changed for sure. It changed my skiing a lot because we got the best skis now. Um, yeah, it has changed so much from before, before the build together was uh, initiated. Um, because the skis weren't really how we wanted them or how we needed them. And the guy doing the product development just didn't listen to us. He thought he's knows everything better. Um, and then, um, this whole thing changed and built together came, uh, came into play. And the first, so the first project was the 121, which is the ski that I always use for everything. And yeah, we would basically develop that ski with the entire team. Um, the um, engineer used to be used to compete in, uh, in slope style did his master in engineering and started to work for Völkel. And so he exactly understands everything that we tell him. And we did a bunch of trips together to, yeah, to make that ski work. Also, we also decided about designs together and artists and, and everything. And yeah, so now I think it's, it's been uh, six skis that have been developed since. Um, I've been part of, uh, three pairs because Shinka, which is the team manager and also product manager, he's probably the most legendary team manager in the game. Um, he picks the team that fits to the ski that, that is about to be, um, developed basically. So in, uh, for the 121, we had, uh, it was a group of free ride, freestyle, backcountry, freestyle, free ride guys. Um, we just finished the 114, which is more of a big mountain charging ski, um, directional. And so Shinka, mm, put the team together that uses that ski the most. And, you know, so as riders actually develop the ski for us and the same thing in the, in park skiing. Um, I think this year is going to finish the third park ski, which of course is made with the best park skiers that, uh, 
that are in the team and actually out there. And so, yeah, it's, it's really cool because it's, it's also cool for me to see how the park ski is going to turn out, you know, cause they guy, those guys, they think about as much of how a park ski could be like we do with the free ride skis. And, uh, and yeah, so there is some cool, some cool technologies and stuff going into that. Super exciting. Do you have like a particular design element that you personally really pushed for with the Revolt 121? Or related question, do you kind of have just a specific design characteristic or quality of skis you're going to be on that you always are particularly sensitive or particularly pushing for a particular, you know, is it about shape? Is it about flex pattern? Is it about weight? Is it about, well, I'll let you take the, the question from there. Uh, yeah. So I think the coolest feature that, um, Lucas, the engineer, um, came up with together with Völkel, which I had no clue about is the three radio side cut. So basically, you know how, uh, a ski with a, a fat ski with a huge radius is super nice in the power because it drifts super easily and it makes the ski way surfy, but on the slope, it's super boring and suck. It sucks to ski on the slopes. And, uh, so with this three radius, you know, when you go on hard pack, the smaller radius grabs and you can actually really race on the slopes as well. Like if there is f a couple of centimeters of fresh, I always use the fat ski. If I just, I, I always use that ski because it's just too fun in every, in every conditions. So that is one of the things that, um, that is part of pretty much every ski now. Um, but we always test a lot of different, uh, a lot of different shapes. Um, like we, with every ski, we've, we've always been testing a two, two radius side cuts as well. Um, just to see if the difference is actually, uh, still up to date or like if it's actually makes that ski better as well. And it always turned out to be the three radius. So it's like a one thing that, w that, goes through the entire line. Um, and, uh, bah, it's been a long time. What else is cool? Well, the, um, for me, it's the softer tail as the nose, because when you land. Softer tail than the tip. Because when you land, it makes the tail sink in a little bit more. And the position of landing is actually way more natural and centered than, um, yeah, than for most other skis. So you can stomp better. And, um, the stiff nose, makes it the, the stiff nose then shoots out of the snow without without bending up in the front and making like that yep. wall in the front 
And I suppose if you're, I am, well, you tell me, are you skiing the Revolt 121 dead center? Uh, I skied one and a half centimeters back. One to two centimeters back. Like on the free okay. ride, I would mount it two centimeters back. If we're going to hit back counter jumps, I mount it one centimeter back of the true center, which is a couple of centimeters before recommend, like true, yeah. towards the middle of recommended. So that makes sense, actually. I mean, so that slightly softer tail when you're already quite forward on the ski. Yeah. That tip will come up. You want that thing. You don't want that tip submarining below the snow or being too soft where it's flying up into your face. And then that softer tail, I, I, I see how that works. I mean, I guess if you're really, really landing backseat, maybe that makes the ski more prone to wheelie out. Mm. Oh, and it also has the, it has a twin tip tail. Of course, but it's a super light, gradual shape. So it's still kind of flat at the end, but uh, it allows you to go switch and land switch and, and whatever. Um, but just the fact that it's almost a flat tail makes it not wheeling out. Or like, of course, you can, you can wheelie out and maybe you do wheelie out a little bit, but it digs into the snow. So it may, it pops you back up front. Um, as well, that kind of flatter tail also helps for pretty much every year. I, I would find myself like putting the tails down before I land to get back to center. It, uh, and if it's, if it's like a real tail twin tip, it makes you, would make you wheelie out. Like it's, it's kind of a little anchor that you can put down and which puts you into position again. And uh, yeah, there is so many features that, um, I can't, uh, there is not that, it doesn't come to my mind, but the whole ski is thought through super well. And you've said it multiple times, but this is the ski you're spending yes. the vast amount of your time on. Yeah. Let's circle back to this coming season. First of all, so you're feeling good. You're feeling good right now. Like hundred out of a hundred, eighty-five out of a hundred. How you feeling? Um, I am feeling. I haven't done too much in the last two weeks because I was. Life is super busy at the moment. Fall is always a busy time of the year. This year more, but prior to the last two weeks, I was re I felt really, really good. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm, I never really feel ready for the season. I always feel like I'm not that fit as fit as I want to be. And, um, I never really going into the season i'm never like okay this um yeah, i'm gonna destroy it completely because i'm just so prepared i always feel underprepared and um also right now but yeah the snow can come for sure what's on tap for you this year uh it's kind of a secret couple of secrets 
But yeah, it will be competition and filming. We won't tell anyone. Coming your way for filming, but more north. Competition and filming. A lot more north. Okay, we're going to AK. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm telling it. Uh, we're going to AK. Super exciting project. Going to AK. I can't tell you that much more about it, but um, last time I've been there was in 2015 with MSP. And um, I feel like I'm a much better skier now, so I'm really excited to to see what I can do there now. And uh, yeah, there's also an exciting competition coming up, which is a bit of a secret too. <laughs> and yeah, lots of things to do. Hmm. Well, now I'm excited hearing you talk about like, I feel like I'm a much better skier than I was the last time I was in AK. <laughs> uh, you you have my attention. <laughs> that that I will stay tuned for that. Yeah, AK is just um yeah, that's the place where you can really show your skills. There is no place like that. There is places with with uh, also super sick AK conditions like Georgia. For example, when we were in Georgia, we uh, really, it was basically being in AK. It totally felt like that, you know, spines, big pillows, a lot of snow, great snow quality. But there, which is a plus, which is like something good and bad, is that it's um, not a super developed country. So if you have to go to the hospital, it uh, kind of sucks, but that makes it also such a nice cultural experience because it's just a super beautiful country where people live way different than uh, than in yeah than here or in the U.S. and Canada and where I usually ski. Yeah, but and in AK, you know, it's everything around it is a lot more dialed to be able to perform the best, let's say. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time today. This has been a fun conversation and one I've been looking forward to for a while. I love our revelation that everyone should be skateboarding to get healthy for ski season. That's one of my favorite takeaways. So yeah, go go get on your skateboards, kids. What could go wrong? Looking forward and to to seeing what you put together this year and and hoping you feel good through the season too. Yeah, thank you. I hope so too. And I hope you're gonna feel great as well. Since it already dumped at your end, I'm jealous. <laughs> I know we got snow here. I'm heading to Italy. I mean, things are, things seem to be going okay, you know, right now. Yep. See how long the world, uh, how much time we have, or let's say till the world goes crazy. <laughs> Cause over here, it definitely feels like it. Gotta enjoy the winter <laughs> for sure. Who knows what happens in the world? Does it? Yeah. We should also say too, we'll include links to the ultimate run. If there's one person left on earth who has yet to watch this, not sure what you're doing. One person left on earth, but, but people can also check out you in the latest MSP film. We were at the, the premiere in Crested Butte 
what was that now, a few weeks ago, super fun. I was there with a bunch of friends. We're all quite excited about <laughs> mountain biking right now. Yeah. Watched the film and we were all like, all right, ski season, let's do this. <laughs> and so it uh, mission was accomplished there, but um, super fun getting to see a ski uh, in the latest MSP film too. Cool. Yeah, it was great time again. Great time always with, with Merstick for sure. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you. And then, as I said, going to be talking to Hoji in a few hours here. I'll be sure to ask him your questions. I think our work here is done for the moment. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, hope you get to ski very soon. Likewise. Likewise. All right, Marcus, you take care. Awesome. You too. Have a great day. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Marcus for the great conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you are enjoying these Blister Podcast conversations, we would very much appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And that step will just help us keep this thing going and growing. And finally, on behalf of our entire team from Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast, then Wednesday over on our Crafted podcast. Thursday, you can hear us on Bikes and Big Ideas. And then next Friday, we're back with another Gear 30 episode. So lots of great podcast conversations happening over here every single week. Check them out, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, everybody.